you. Thanks, Robin Ellison. Thank you, team. Ah, oh, so good, so good to be with you. Um, and as Rob said, we we just we love that that partnership that we had at the end of last year with carols and being able to spread the joy of Christmas and and it was our hope and our aspiration that we'd get to the point in Solihull where the town knows that Christmas begins when we're out in the town doing carols so we're we're praying and believing that we'll be able to pick that back up at some point but I, I do actually owe you an apology from that event now I'm not quite too sure who it was so it was a female Taller than me, but that's not difficult. Um, I think light hair, but I, I might be wrong. And in the changeover from the morning team to the afternoon team, we had a shortage of jackets. So you came to me and said, oh, I can't find a jacket. So I ripped off my jacket and threw it at you so that you could get out there on the pitch. And then I found one a bit later on. About an hour and a half later, I thought, I'm feeling a bit peckish. So I put my hand into the right pocket of my jacket and realized that the cereal bar was now with you. Not only was the cereal bar with you, but the banana peel and the half-eaten pear from the morning session was in the left-hand pocket. So if halfway through trying to spread the joy of Christmas, you found yourself covered in moldy pear and banana, I, I humbly, humbly apologize. And goodness me, in the world of hygiene that we now all exist, um, if you ended up ill, honestly, it wasn't from me. I was healthy in December. So if that was you, huge apologies. I hope you enjoyed the cereal bar and apologies for the mouldy the mouldy fruit. Um, I, I once saw, I can't remember who that, who that lady was, but uh, there is one lady that I can remember because I once saw the most beautiful woman in the world. Uh, not my wife, uh, she was with me at the time though, and slightly bit more risque because uh, this lady was topless at the time. Um, and uh, we, we went to, to see her and there were crowds gathering, gathering rounds. And as we got closer and closer, you could feel the excitement and the, the awe and the people just desperate to catch a glimpse of this outstanding beauty. And as we were getting closer, I was starting to get, oh, you know, oh, this, this is going to be good. This is going to be exciting. I'm going to gaze on, on her beauty. And as we turned the corner in the Louvre gallery, there she was in all her splendor, the Venus de Milo. Oh, what a, what a stunner. The, uh, the Greek marble from around about 100 BC. And, and here was the thought that ran through my head as we saw her. In fact, not only did it run through my head, it ran out of my mouth. And I heard myself saying quite loudly, where's her arms? Oh, for goodness sake, she's broken. Now, just, just a little tip. You've probably worked out I normally get my culture from a yogurt pot. Um, but just a little tip. If you are in the Louvre Gallery in Paris, you may not know French. They do understand English. And if you criticise the artworks out loud, um, I do know that the word anglaise was referring to me, and I do know that the tone was not pleasant. So we, we left quite swiftly, having seen her, and went to the coffee shop, because that's more my style. But there we go. I want uh, this morning to think about the mission strategy of the Apostle Paul. 
And I know I've got about 17 minutes left, but I know that you guys are smart, that you love the word, that you love digging deep. So we can, we can move quite quickly as we think about the mission strategy of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read Acts 18, uh, verses 1 to 11 to you. It says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a, main, of a man named Titus Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I love uh, that just short little passage. There's just some great things that jump out. Paul was occupied with the word. Man, I pray as churches, we're occupied. We're busy with the word. We're busy letting people know the hope that is in Jesus. I love the encouragement that God gives Paul. Keep going. There are many in this city that belong to me and they just don't know it yet. You know, from, from Jago House to Renewal Load Lane, there are many people who don't know who we are, who don't know who Jesus are. So let's be occupied with the word because we've got to bring them in. So Paul, Paul has this normal strategy. If you're familiar with the, with the book of Acts, you'll know Paul is a Roman citizen, but he's also uh, a racial Jew. And so he is educated under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce Gamaliel's name, but, but Rob will confirm next week for you. Uh, and Gamaliel was this, this incredible rabbi. So if you'd been a student under him, you know, you could turn up in a town and turn up to the synagogue and introduce yourself. And your credentials of having studied under the great rabbi would mean they would open the platform and please come and teach. And so this was Paul's normal strategy. He does it in Corinth, he does it in Ephesus, he goes into the synagogue and he starts to teach. Of course, the moment he starts teaching about Jesus, he hits resistance. And in Corinth, the resistance gets so much that he goes, I'm done with this. I'm out. I'm going to leave the, the judgment on your own heads. I'm off to the Gentiles. And he moves out and he goes next door. A couple of things that I think about. When we face resistance in our normal strategy, what do we do? I mean, we found it this year already, haven't we? The things we would normally do, the open platforms that we would normally have, the things that we can do, not without hard work, but they're relatively easy. Turn up at church, open the building, run a service, preach the gospel, and suddenly we find the resistance 
and we can't go that way anymore. And what does the apostle do? He innovates. What have you guys done? You have innovated. Like, I applaud you and your leaders for doing this live every single week. Man, that, that is hard work. I applaud the innovation that you've done. I know the hard work that you've done with Storehouse so that you can keep that going and you can keep supporting families. You've come against resistance and gone, okay, if our normal strategy doesn't work, let's do something different. Celebrate that. And, you know, we're going to have to do that again. Because even if we are allowed to gather next week, it may be very, very different. It might take some of us a couple of months before we can get back in the building. And who knows what it will look like when we get there. But that doesn't matter. Because when we find resistance, we know that behind it is the hand of God innovating his people to reach out and do something different. I love what happens I absolutely love what happens. If you look at verse eight, it says this, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Now, the, the run of these three verses gets me thinking. So verse six, Paul's in the synagogue, but there's resistance. Verse seven, he goes, okay, I'm changing strategy. I'm moving out and I'm going next door. I'm going to meet in the house of Titus with the Gentiles next door. Verse six, it's too difficult in the synagogue. Verse seven, I'm going next door. Verse eight, the ruler of the synagogue believes. Now, we, we can't quite define the exact timeline that Crispus came to faith, but Dr. Luke is pretty good with detail. So if he came to faith when Paul was speaking in the synagogue, would he not have said there was resistance in the synagogue, but Crispus believed and followed Paul out? It appears that the ruler of the synagogue comes to faith as Paul leaves the synagogue and goes next door. Maybe the people we've been trying to reach won't be reached by the current strategy. And so as we change it, suddenly... I mean, just imagine for Paul, I've been preaching in the synagogue and you've resisted me. The moment I stop and do something else, one of your leaders becomes a Christian. I think Dr. Luke is stressing this. Jesus is in charge of the harvest. Jesus is in charge of the harvest. And some of the things that we think are failures, some of the things that we give up on, some of the things that we go, this is too difficult. We're going to do it differently in that moment. The people, the very people we've been trying to reach. We are desperate to reach Solihull through carols. If we can't do it through carols, so what else are we going to do? What's the other strategy? Because maybe just the people we are trying to reach, God allows resistance to come so we can move next door and see them come to faith. What is Paul's strategy? He just keeps going. He just keeps going. He keeps innovating. He keeps changing. He keeps preaching and finding a way to tell people the good news of Jesus. That's the first thing I want to pull out from the text. The second thing I want to pull out from the text, God, God speaks to Paul in Acts 18.9 and he says this, do not be afraid. So Paul is in the middle of preaching in Corinth. He's He's tried it in the synagogue. His normal strategies hit resistance. He's shifted, but still seen some of the Jewish leaders come to faith. Things appear to be going well. But God appears and says, Paul, don't be afraid. 
I wonder what image you have of the Apostle Paul in your head. In my head, like, he's just bulletproof. I mean, this is the guy who, who gets stoned. Everybody thinks he's dead. He jumps back up, dusts himself off and carries on again. I, I don't know how many shipwrecks you would need to put you off sailing, but I'll tell you this. The first ferry in France that goes down that I'm on is the last time I will ever step foot on a boat. I mean, you know, even the rough crossings make me think, why, why did we not do the tunnel? In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I've been shipwrecked three times. Three times that boat has gone down and still he gets on a boat to Rome. Like, what? I'd walk. No, I don't even know if you can walk, but uh, one shipwreck would put me off. The guy appears to be bulletproof. In Ephesus, the whole city riots and Paul goes, oh, let me go and have a chat with them. I mean, if the whole of the NEC was filled with Solihull rioting because of me, I would not be going to the NEC to have a chat with them. Like the guy just appears to be bulletproof. But, you know, there's a different side to him. Why in Corinth does God say, Paul, don't be afraid? Because Paul's afraid. In Corinth, there's, there's a moment of fear. We don't know what it's about, but he discloses this himself. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 3, here's what he says. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. The, the, the incredible apostle Paul turns up in Corinth, he's weak, he's fearful, and he's trembling. I know you're, you're in the book of James at the moment. The book of James contains the most unbelievable scripture in the entire of the New Testament. I struggle to take it. It says this, Elijah was a man like us. And I want to jump in and go, <clears throat> excuse me, James, thank you for the comparison. But no, Elijah, Elijah was not a man like me. Like, I'm just trying to get out of bed and read my Bible every morning. Elijah slaughtering 400 prophets and calling down fire from heaven. Like, we, we are not in the same league. We are not the same species. This guy is something else. And I'm just, you know, criticizing artworks out loud in the French gallery. I, I am not like Elijah. I am not like the Apostle Paul. But, you know, when we hold on to our biblical heroes and we only see this this heroic image that we want to hold to. Actually, we do ourselves a disservice because we are like them. You know, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, I was burdened beyond my strength. He said, I, I despaired of life itself. You know, if if you go and say that to your GP, like I'm just burdened beyond what I can carry, I'm despairing of living. I mean, they'll, they'll put you on antidepressants. Like Paul has got to the point where he's going, ah, I got to the point where I just didn't think I could do this anymore. I, I can't identify with the Paul that can get shipwrecked three times and still get on a boat. I identify with the Paul who goes, have I got the energy for this? Have I got the strength to do this? Can, can I really... <laughs> Reimagine everything all over again and go again because I'm just tired. I don't know about, about you. I don't know how, 
how lockdown has been for you. Uh, we joked at the beginning about you know, being busy. Um, I'm tired. Like, I don't know about your leaders. I don't know about you as a congregation. This has just been hard, hard work. And in the first half of the message, when I was celebrating Paul's innovation and saying, we have to go again, we have to keep going with the mission, you know, you can almost feel this, yes, we know it's true, but we're just trying to get around the supermarket once a week. We're just trying to keep this thing going and keep everyone connected. We're just trying to not strangle our children and get them safely to September before they go back to school and now you're telling us we have to shift strategy all over again and see the town of Solihull come to faith we're struggling to cling on to our own I want to say this and I think Paul would say this God isn't looking for you to be perfect he's just looking for you to be present he's not looking for your boundless energy He's just looking for your exhausted obedience. And the Apostle Paul would come alongside you and say, I brought two things to Corinth, a resolve to keep going and my weaknesses. That's all he had. Weak, fearful, trembling, but I'm just going to keep going. And if something doesn't going to work, I'm just going to try again. And somewhere between my tiredness and resolve the presence of God is going to come and do something for his kingdom. You don't have to have it all together. You just have to show up. We go back to, back to the Louvre Gallery. You know, I learned something really from, from that statue. Um, a lot of us, we look at ourselves and we go, you know, gosh, our arms are broken. Or there's bits of us that are exposed. Or there's things in, the, in, our, in our lives that have just chipped away bits of us and we just go, oh, I don't think God can really use me. Or we pray, God, would you take this weakness away from, you, from me? God, would you take away my tiredness? God, would you take away my fear? God, would you take away the bits of me that are broken that I think I'm not strong enough to do this? Do you know, if you made arms for Venus and tried to stick them on, you would be dragged out of that gallery and criticised. And yet that's what we want to do for ourselves. We want to pretend that we're perfect. We want to cover up our brokenness. And God would say, no, I want you to get up on that plinth, broken, tired, exhausted and exposed. And I'm going to pour my glory on you and draw the nations to come and see you. And there will always be one ignorant Englishman in the background going, what? This church? Don't you know how broken they are? Don't you know how dysfunctional things are? What, what those leaders? But, but they're topless. And you just have to ignore them and go, God will pour his glory on weak, broken vessels and use them to draw the nations to come. And Jubilee. And maybe you in your homes, in your, in your individual life, maybe you're saying, we're tired, we're weak, we don't quite know if we've got the energy for this. Paul would come alongside you and go, I know exactly what you mean, keep going. There'll be some strategies that you give up on and in that moment you'll see new people come to faith. There'll be some things that you try where you encounter incredible resistance, but keep going anyway because there are many in this town that the Lord of the harvest is wanting to bring in.
get up on that platform with all your weakness and let the glory of God be poured on you. Last scripture, and then I'll pray as we close. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, you know it. Paul begs God, God, take away some of my weaknesses. There's this thorn in his flesh that he's like, if you just took this away, I'd be so much more effective for your kingdom. And God goes, no, I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to make you bulletproof. I'm not going to fix everything that's broken about you. I'm just going to pour my grace upon you. And in your weakness, my grace will bring you my strength. In your moments of brokenness, in your moments where you step up to tell people about Jesus with a sick bucket in your hand because you're petrified, that is where the strength of God will pour through you. We are broken, but we are beautiful. We are exhausted, but we are obedient. We are weak, but his strength is sufficient. And there are many in this town that will come to him as we keep changing and following. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for Jubilee. I thank you for Rob and Alison and their leaders. I thank you for their incredible people who are so dear to our hearts, but even more dear to you. Lord, whatever state we're in, whether the last three months have been one of blissful rest or one of sheer exhaustion, Lord, I pray in our weakness we would know your strength. Lord, I pray that you would help us to get comfortable with our brokenness, knowing that in those moments you pour your glory over us. And so, Lord, we pray for our town. Lord, there are many in this town that belong to you. They just don't yet know it. And God, would you help us to go again, to innovate and to change, and to see many of them come to faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you. Thank you guys. So, so good to be with you. We love you lots. Bless you.